as we begin, I'm going to encourage you to find John chapter 6, so you can follow along this morning. It doesn't matter to me if you're following with a physical print Bible or an electronic Bible, but I recommend you follow along. We're going to start at verse 38 in just a moment. While you're finding that, it has been said that evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Jesus, in our passage today, says, I am the bread of life. Let's connect those dots today. If we look at John 6, 38 through 40, Jesus himself says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. If I may point out an observation, one thing that I think is being lost right now in the world around us and has been lost for a while in many ways is hope. People put their hope in things that are way too low and undeserving, and I'm a little concerned that that has crept into the church, whether by osmosis or some other means, that we have lost our hope sometimes and put our hope in lower things. It's not a new phenomenon. It happens regularly and it happens to all of us. But what it means is that as we consider what Jesus is saying and as we consider the reality of how we live our lives, sometimes we have come, especially in the church, to believe some lies. These are untruths. And I want to pick out three. The first two are really related. They're they're opposite sides of the same coin. The first is, and perhaps sitting in the room and sitting at home, uh, this one isn't one that you explicitly believe and you would reject it. But but it'll go with the second one. Listen to it. The first lie that we've come to believe, and it's even infecting evangelical circles, is that there is more than one path of salvation. There's more than one way to get there besides Jesus. I'm going to suggest that most of us watching today and most of us in the room don't actually believe that. But all of us sometimes implicitly practice that without realizing it. Because sometimes we act as if, and this is the second lie that we believe, someone else will tell others about Jesus. Which is an implicit way that we sometimes act out that there's more than one path of salvation. We don't mean it that way, but sometimes our actions illustrate a belief that we don't want to hold. The third lie, and this again, we wouldn't say it out loud, but our actions sometimes lead us down this path. The third lie that we sometimes believe is that my walk with Jesus is good enough right now. And, and sometimes we kind of come to the conclusion that there's not much that needs to be improved there. I'm satisfied with it right now. And again, we wouldn't verbalize it, but the reason we can sometimes realize that we believe that, I can fall into this trap as much as anybody else, is from our habits, our devotional habits, our study habits, our prayer habits, sometimes reveal that we don't want to change those things because we don't want to be challenged further, which means that we're kind of satisfied with the relationship as it is now. I hope as we open up God's word today in John 6, that we are challenged 
to not be satisfied with our relationship with Jesus Christ and to recognize that he is the only path of salvation and he has called us to share the bread of life with others. We're part of his solution to that one path of salvation. All three of these lies are addressed in the passage, especially the wider passage, but certainly what we're looking at today. Jesus tells us what is true. I am the bread of life. Does anybody believe that in the house today? At home, you can put it on, amen, on the comments. You can shout it out. I just can't hear you. I wish I could. So let's go back to John 6.39. Since we read the three verses there, 6.39, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. We know that Jesus came for the lost sheep of Israel. That's really his primary mission. That doesn't mean Gentiles are out of the picture. It means he came back initially to remind Israel of their job to reach everybody and show who God is to the world to call them home. That's what Israel was supposed to do. Jesus came to the lost sheep of Israel to, first and foremost, remind them of that. Now, he did something more. He was obviously going to enact salvation for everybody as part of that. But you can see clearly, even here, he wants everybody to taste the bread of life. He is the bread of life. He is salvation. He wants everybody. He wants no one to be lost who would come to him, which means he wants everybody to come to him and not be lost in the process. And the question is, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, a disciple is simply a Jesus follower. He's the teacher. We're the student. We follow him. We learn the ways. And through his power and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, we are transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So we look like him too and act like him in ways that we couldn't do ourselves. If that's who we follow, the one who self-sacrificed and gave himself so everybody could taste the bread of life as the only path of salvation, then what does that mean for us as his students? Aren't we supposed to have the same attitude as the master? Are we on the same mission as Jesus? that everybody would taste the bread of life, or at least have that opportunity, as long as we're living, living and breathing. John 6, 35, Jesus actually says it. We should recognize it's no small statement. These are one of the seven I am statements in the book of John. Every time Jesus says one of those, he's making both a proclamation as himself as Messiah, but there's a divine proclamation as himself as God. That statement, I am, is a bold statement. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There's no human alive that can make that claim, except Jesus, who of course was God and man together. No human alive can do that. What's the proclamation? If We, we need to understand, first of all, the bread part of it. Uh, the bread is the entree in Jesus' day. It's, it's the full meal deal, basically. You don't feel full until you've had the bread, with your meal. That's what's going on. When I was in college in uh, the north side of Chicago, the church I attended was very international, a lot of refugees, and uh, a lot of international students were there, and I remember uh, we were sharing uh, on one particular Sunday, and an international student from Japan got up, and she shared a, a kind of traditional Japanese anecdote in modern life, which is all Japanese people, she said, have two stomachs, one for the regular meal and one for rice and they don't feel full until they've had rice. I feel the same way about cereal, right? If my day didn't start right, if I didn't have cereal. You might feel that way about coffee, all kinds of other things. The bread is that way. 
right? Yeah, of course they could have meals without bread, but bread stands in as the meal. That's why when Jesus prays and teaches his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Give us the thing that's sufficient and will fill us up today, God. We're looking to you for our provision. That's the bread of life. And when he says life, he will elucidate that many times throughout the book of John, but John 17.3 is a good core sample of what Jesus means, where it says, now this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, he's talking about God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Again, a very bold statement. That they know you, God. This is eternal life. And of course, we know that knowledge about something or someone is different than actually knowing them. I could read a book about my wife, but that's not how I want to know my wife, right? I would know about her, but I wouldn't know her. We can read a book about God, self-described and and autographed, or autobiography in in a great sense, but we need to know God. There's a difference. That's where life is found. I'm the bread of life. He would actually know God. The disciples, Jesus' followers, disciples, you see, know their teacher. And they have tasted the bread of life. And they find their sufficiency in God alone. That's what they recognize. Now, with the disciples, Jesus does an interesting thing in the sort of the culture that he builds, and I I bring this up because I think this is the culture that his church is supposed to have too. Jesus combines what we would call high challenge with high invitation. There's, There's nobody that Jesus encounters that he doesn't want and challenge them to be more, to represent the image of God more than they do, to get rid of sin more, and every time he, he encounters people, he invites them. Do you notice this? He's invitational by design, and he challenges by design. I want to show you a chart. This is a, a chart from uh, Mike Breen. He's a pastor in, I think, South Carolina or North Carolina. I never remember which one, uh, on the screen. So you can't see me. You can simply see the chart at home. But I think Breen does a good job of pointing out what Jesus gets at and what the church should be too. In, in what our attitude is. So he points out here, if you look at the chart, you've got uh, a low challenge, low invitation environment is a very boring environment to exist in. Nobody's inspired to do much, uh, and they're not inspired to invite other people into it. Where it's easy for church life to live is between those two, uh, two corner components of being, being high invitation and low challenge, and low invitation, high challenge, that in one case, you can, you can have an excitement to invite a lot of people in, but not really challenge them to anything further with life with Jesus Christ. You create a great family environment, and a great family reunion happens every week when you gather together, but nobody's really moving towards Jesus Christ. We're kind of satisfied with where we're at. There's little challenge to be more like Christ. And then, of course, if you have it the opposite, if you live in a culture, a church culture, we'll say specifically in this case, where you have low invitation, but you're challenged every week. It's an epic challenge every week to be more like Christ, but nobody's inviting anybody into that or, or that's not even encouraged or whatever. You get very discouraged. What's really going on here? What's God really up to? But Jesus actually has a high invitation, high challenge environment, and I think the right word, I bring this up because I think Mike Breen has a good word here. It's an empowered culture. He empowers his disciples 
he gives them the bread of life, and then he says, now go serve up the bread of life. High invitation, high challenge. That's who we're supposed to be if we're disciples who make disciples. Are people who are constantly inviting others, beggars, who have found the bread of life, inviting other beggars to feast on that bread. We are disciples, right? We follow Jesus, and we will never outmaster the master. We'll never outdo him in this life. We'll always be following him, and that's good. And we're disciples who make disciples. Jesus invited us. Anybody thankful for that in the house, that Jesus invited us into eternal life with him that begins now? There's no other path of salvation. We're on a mission. We feasted on the bread of life if we follow Jesus. We're on a mission to share that. We're disciples who make disciples. Now, what could complicate that mission? We can see that in the text. If you go back to verses 26 and 27. For context, when these verses come up, uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, and then he walked across to water. So a lot's happened in a short period of time. And then uh, you have both religious leaders and some of the people who feasted all there together. Um, and in verse 26, it says, Very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. What could complicate the mission of being disciples who make disciples? Well, first, we could be eating spiritually spoiled food. That is to say, when you look in the text, and you can see further detail as they go on, the people that are inquiring of Jesus are focused on what God did, not what God is doing. It's not bad to see what God did. We've got to see that. That's part of why we enter into worship together and serve the living God. That's how faith is developed. But they're only looking at that, not what God is doing, right? The people saw the signs, but they didn't actually see what they pointed towards. We at our home three weeks ago got a kitten. It's a four-month-old kitten. She's getting into all kinds of mischief. The dog thinks she's great. But both dog and cat uh, actually play fetch, as it turns out. And both of them miss the signs sometimes. You've probably done this with an animal like this where you throw the ball in the, with the cat. I've been throwing the mouse, and it plays fetch. It brings it back and wants to do it again. It's fun. Sometimes you throw it, and what happens? The cat misses that you threw the thing, and then you point. And what does every dog or cat do when you point? They look right at your finger, right? They're missing the sign. What is the sign doing? It's pointing to where it is. And the dog and the cat have no cognitive ability to understand that. You could think of it a different way. This was the first example that came to mind when I thought of this, uh, is if you drove from here to Colorado, you encounter that colorful Colorado sign when you cross the border, which is anything but colorful, right? It's brown and weather-beaten sign. It's a cool sign, but it's not colorful, which is always funny to me. But there's a place where you can park, and people park and take pictures. You can look, you Google it right now, and you'll see all kinds of people have publicly put up their pictures, I don't know why, on Google of their families. But what I don't see there, I don't see anybody that's built a house there thinking they arrived at the destination. Do you know why? Because we understand that a sign points to something else. Jesus, whenever he does his miracles, his mighty deeds, they're always signs pointing to the greater life that is to come when the kingdom fully arrives. 
healing. He heals some people now. Some people don't get healed. Everybody that follows Jesus will be healed in the kingdom. People who are eating the food that's multiplied now, he doesn't multiply all the food he runs into, but in the kingdom of God, there's going to be no scarcity of food. We'll have our fill. Only if we follow and, and feast on the bread of life now. The people, though, were satisfied, they thought, spiritually in this case, no need to change that. They're looking to what God did, not what God will do, missing the signs in their midst of what's going to happen. And they're not really willing to concede the message of Jesus, understanding that God is doing something, and the message is the same, but the medium, the way he's presenting it, might be different now. So they even point out in the passage, hey, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. They're remembering their past, which is an important part of their past to remember. Remember, Moses gave us manna, and, God, and Jesus even corrects them. Actually, God gave you the manna through Moses. It wasn't Moses, it was God. And guess what God's giving you now? the bread of life through me. And even as they're entering the promised land, back when God was giving them manna, and God stops giving the manna because they enter into the promised land, they're still wanting the manna. When they're getting the manna, they're still wanting the last thing that God did. God's always trying to give them more, and they seem to want less. They miss the signs. I would suggest, since we're talking about church life in this time too, and we're talking about the high challenge, high invitation environment, that kind of thing, that we, too, with, uh, who follow Jesus and comprise his church as we live through the pandemic and enter into post-pandemic day, whatever that day will be, as church practice and Christian practice, we need to make sure that we don't miss the signs of what God is doing in our midst. Things are changing around us. We talked about that last week. And we want to make sure we understand the message is the same. The bread is still the bread, but normal Christian life like it was is probably not going to be the same going into the future. And we'd be wrong if we miss the signs. We're going to have to adjust our facilities probably in the future. Adjust our attitude towards tech. Adjust how we gather and connect with one another. But the message is still the same. Right? We don't want to be focused on what's happening, what God did in the past, but what God is doing in the present. We have to do that in our work, in our school, everything, in order to be able to share the bread of life right now. But we're disciples who make disciples. Actively recognizing what God did and what God is doing, not simply living in the past. We don't want to eat spiritually spoiled food. The second thing that could complicate our mission, we'll spend much less time on this, is that we could also eat spiritual junk food and feast on that alone. And this is where I was talking about hope at the very beginning. An awful lot of people, and even within the church, are not looking to God at all for their sufficiency, for their input on how to live life, but they kind of act like they are or think they are. Now, I'll just make this statement. A lot of our anxiety today is caused by eating spiritual junk food as if it is the bread of life. Right? A lot of things animate us in this life, and rightly so. Right? We just spent, what, the last 10 years going through a presidential election, it felt like, right? Politics animates us. I, I will be, uh, as a pastor, I, I'm often a little bit disappointed that people get far more animated in political rallies than they do in church. Where's the bread of life? We get animated about political issues and, and other issues that people bring up, whether it's the environment, whether it's justice. We get animated about our own children, if you have children, about relationships that we have. We get animated, and rightly so, about protecting life from conception to natural death. All of those are important issues, but they're not necessarily transcendent issues. 
right? They're important, but they, they fit within the world God has created. They are not the bread of life. And we often feast on important this life stuff as if it's transcendent, as if it's beyond this moment, as if it is our hope, but we set our hope too low in those cases. You see, Jesus offers eternal life beginning now and better life to come if only we follow and those other important issues fit within that world. And we attack those within that sphere and within that worldview of Jesus' eternal life, but we don't treat those as if they are eternal life and our hope. That's the difference. The good news is the promise of life. As disciples, we are invited to eat the living bread and to offer it to others. Salvation is found in no other place. Jesus is clear about this. So I want to give us a a little challenge today. You can call it a high challenge if you want. You can call it a low challenge. I'm not worried about that. Last week I asked you to do a 1 to 10 rating of your discipleship temperature. How close are you feeling to Jesus um, and, and really, there's actually, this is one of those cases where there isn't a wrong answer in the sense if you're just being honest, you want to know where you are so you can address the issue, right? I didn't see your answer. I don't know if you shared it with anybody else, but I didn't see your answer. This week, uh, maybe this is more of a challenge to some people, what's your evangelism temperature? One to ten. One is low, ten is red hot. I'm actually not worried about your answer. I'm more worried about that you do answer. And if you look at that and you say, Pastor Evan, I don't want to answer that, then I say, okay. For everybody else, what's your evangelism temperature? One low, ten red hot, and I have a follow-up question after that, no matter where you are. But really consider this. And actually, just so we can get a congregational sample of last week's question and this week's question, which, by the way, last week's question was just a modification of the old question we used to ask in the covenant and should still, how goes your walk with Christ? If you test your evangelism temperature uh, shortly after the service, everybody that signed up for our email updates, you're going to get a text with a link with two questions. They're totally anonymous to answer this so we can get a congregational pulse of where we are. I won't know your answer. I'll simply have an aggregate of who answers the question. What's your evangelism temperature? One through ten. But here's the real question behind that. If you found the bread of life, how can you share it this week? That's the real question. Even if you're a one, how do you move the needle up? If you're a 10, how do you encourage others to get there? How can we share the bread of life this week? One of the glories is that we get to share the bread of life together right now. So I'm going to invite you to join me at the table.